Good morning. Great to see you. Uh, you know, I'd like to start uh, with just one thing that I'd like to say to all of you real quick. And, you know, that is that I'm amazed uh, on a consistent basis by all of you. Uh, just the way that this community has responded, we have received so many emails from people saying, I'm willing to help. Uh, that survey we did last week, just dozens and dozens of you had said, you know, uh, about the government shutdown, what can we do? Can we go grocery shopping? Can we cook a meal? Can we volunteer at the church? It's all kinds of things. Uh, and it's just really fantastic. Well, I, I say this on a somewhat regular basis, and the reason why I say this is because of what we've seen in the response that is happening right now. And that is that some of the greatest people in this city come to Grace Community Church and really do. Um, we, when we, last week when we said, you know, we've got these gift cards and we, you know, we want to give them out, and we had so many people come to us that many people took them because we gave out dozens and dozens of cards and we mailed dozens and dozens of cards, but we also had so many people come and say, look, I'll take a card or maybe I'll hold off right now, but I have coworkers you know, that, that need help. And so we had people text message their supervisors or email their supervisors and nine people from the EPA got a bunch of cards from us, um, 14 street secret service agents, a uh, number of people in the coast guard and the just list goes on and on and on. When I got here last week, I was down in our VIP cafe. Some of you know what that is. Some of you don't. We, we feed our volunteers, really a phenomenal breakfast. It blows my mind. I just go and look at this huge spread of food every week. I can't believe it. And a gentleman came up to me and handed me a handwritten note with a very generous check inside of it and said, whatever, you know, can be done to help those in need. And so I just wanted to say before I begin today, you know, you guys just blow me away uh, consistently with your heart to help and to serve and to be generous. And so I want to I just want to want to thank you for that. It was just really great. All right. Uh, bef- before I get into the text for today, which is Romans chapter two, verses one to five, let me let me just say this: We're taking a slow trek, you know, through Romans. And one person asked me this morning. They said, "So, you know, like, what should be? How can I prepare myself? Like, what?" What chapters should I be reading? So if you just began to read the first couple of chapters, that, that would be great. Just to give you an idea, on March the 17th, when this series ends, we'll make it to the fifth chapter. There's 16 in Romans. This is a very slow, this is very, this has been a long time actually for me since I've done like a true expository, which means line by line, verse by verse through. And I haven't, I guess, get the hang of it again because I really left the first, the 930 service on a cliffhanger. I feel bad for them. I'm like, they're hanging over the side of a cliff when I brought up something that was very controversial. I'm like, oh, I'm out of time. So anyway, uh, I'm just telling you now, I'm not finishing this sermon, but at least I know I'm not finishing it. So it'll be a little, won't be so abrupt. That's the good news. But when you go, when you go through, when you read these incredible chapters uh, in Romans, because it it pushes you and it challenges you so much. And the challenge is mostly to, Paul's challenge mostly to, and I'm going to describe this more in a minute, but just to give an idea, if you're a, not a church person or you're not a Christian, the challenge is not going to be so much. If, if you're a church person, Christian, but maybe your view of the Bible 
isn't so high, like, you know, that challenges so much. But here's the deal. I need you to know this. Like, you're a church person, and you're like me, right? And you have a really high view of the Bible. Oh, my gosh. Paul is going to get all up in your grill, and so, like, in a, in a, in a big, big, big way, okay? I want you to know it's coming. Like, for the next three or four weeks, it's, it's coming tough. So here's the first thing. I say two things to you before we start. The first thing is just to be patient to allow the thought to develop from Paul. Just be patient. So we have a tendency, as C.S. Lewis you know, famously said, that we hear something and we, we look for whatever's been said to support our perspective or our point of view. And when we do that, we don't give a true hearing to it. And so I just really want to encourage you to be really patient with it, to, to allow it to develop, and, and so we can understand what's being said. Now, I had mentioned last week, that for the past like two years, I've had a vestibular issue that came out of nowhere on me. I don't have vertigo. Like, you have vertigo? I don't have vertigo. They ruled that completely out. But what they are is scratching their heads to try to understand why all of a sudden I feel like I'm on a boat. You know, I feel like I'm just sort of like with the baseball bat, you know, the game you play, you put your forehead and you spin around. I feel like that all the time. You know, it's, it's terrible. And so I've been to 20 doctors. I'm be, I was being seen by a team of neurologists up at Johns Hopkins. They're really great. And it's one of our best hospitals. And the entire country, a whole team. But along the way, somebody said, you got to go see this doctor out in Fairfax. I mean, he's brilliant and he's going to, he figures things out that nobody else will figure out. And so I said, okay, I'm looking for anything, right? So I, I go to, uh, go to see him. And the deal is, is that so far they can't, they couldn't, couldn't find anything zero, you know, wrong with all the tests from these 20 doctors. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with you, which Krista says, no, there's something wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> I go, I go to see this guy, and I just say, hey, I say, hey, doc, hey, doc, because I got so used to this. I mean, I want you to imagine all the doctors I've seen. I got really used to doctors being in a hurry, right? And I said, three minutes. That's all you need, three minutes. I guarantee you I'll be right on point. Like, I do this for, I talk for a living. I'll be on point. Just give me three minutes. He's like, go. So I started. I got 30 seconds into it, and he jumped out of his chair. He said, get up. I've got it all figured out. 30 seconds. I'm, Whoa, you got to figure. Yeah, stand there. He looked at me. He said, yep, I got it. What you need is orthotics. I said, so that's the diagnosis, like the team neurologists at Hopkins, they've, they've like spent hours listening to me. Like when I went in there to Hopkins with five doctors sitting in front of me, they spent an entire hour just listening to me. And in 30 seconds, you got it. It's orthotics. Okay. So I tried the orthotics. They didn't work. So this is what I want to say. I want you to be patient. Just not make, you know, a knee-jerk reaction. Like last week was about the wrath of God and about justice. Allow that to, to uh, you know, to understand that. I mean, God's wrath is really understandable because God loves us so much. And like any good parent, God is not indifferent. And when he sees, his, like a parent, like he sees his children hurting, he wants to stop that. I mean, if you've been told that wrath is like, ah, God's angry at you or whatever, that's not really it. You need to think in terms of a good parent, you know, right. So allow this to, allow today to develop. That's the first thing. The second thing is context, everybody. Context is so important. Please. This was, this was a letter that was written 2,000 years ago to a church in Rome that was to be read out loud in that community, in that congregation that was becoming increasingly diverse in a magnificent way. And the thing that you really have to understand is when the church started, I mean, it was a Jewish church. It was a, Christians were Jewish. Jesus said, go to all the world. And they said, no, we're not. We stayed right in Jerusalem. They didn't leave anywhere. Jesus said, clear command, Matthew 28, go. And they said, stay. They didn't go anywhere because it was safe. 
because everybody around them kind of believed and behaved like them for the most part, for the most part. Every, there, was, there was general, broad agreement. But to go out there, well, eventually they did go out there because persecution. They eventually did go out there. And now the pagan Gentiles who would never respond to the truth of Jesus. They would never respond or actually responding in droves. And now you had this like mainly Jewish church and just a few Gentiles, and now it's going like this. And it's getting to the point that it's just exploding. And Paul's having to say, you know, I need to explain the gospel. So you, I have to explain the gospel to you in the midst of that context of where the, sh- the balance of power has radically shifted and people with different behaviors and lifestyles radically different than yours and your grandparents and your great, 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 great grandparents. And it's like shaking them culturally. And so he's trying to explain. And if you don't understand, if you don't know that context, going into this conversation, you're going to be like, what? You're going to make certain uh, assumptions. A number of years ago, uh, my mother-in-law walked into my house, and she had a bouquet of flowers. I, they, were, they were pink, but the flowers were so perfect. I looked at them, and I was like, oh, I'm not big on flowers. I just not, it's not my thing. But I looked at them, and I thought, oh, my gosh, those are the best-looking flowers I've ever seen. So immediately I'm thinking, like a good husband, where did you get those flowers? Because I'm going to go get some for Krista because these are absolutely perfect. And I said to my mother-in-law, I said, where did you, where, you know, where's you going? So I got them at the Cherrydale Safeway. It's on Lee Highway here, uh, Cherrydale Safeway. Foo, Foo is the florist. And Foo got me the flower. She's fantastic. And I just said, excuse me, Foo? And she looked at me because she can be a little impatient. You know what I'm saying? If you have a mother-in-law. And she said, Foo, yeah, F you. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) Now, if you had walked in at that moment, because you're walking into Romans, if you walked in that moment and you heard my mother-in-law screaming that to me, what would you have thought was going on? (laughs) Right? Would you know that she's talking about the florist at the Cherrydale Safeway? You, you wouldn't have known that. So here's so important. You're walking into a conversation. You're walking into a context. You're walking into where all of a sudden the Gentile populace, they're just, just, they would have, the Jewish people thought, the Gentiles will never. There are people that you think don't have a chance would ever respond to the gospel, which is what Romans is about. It's explanation of the gospel, which is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's painting a picture a masterpiece. He said, this is the exact representation. And all of a sudden, these people, that no, they'll never respond. They're responding in droves and like, what's happening? And the Gentile body is just flooding and it's beginning to really rock their church, rock their community. And Paul says, let me explain to you the gospel again, because the reality is over a period of time, we get out of alignment from the gospel. Here's the thing. I tell them this to myself all the time. I say, John, you're going to get out of alignment from the true gospel. You're going to walk away from the exact representation. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. And I get lost in that Bible somewhere, and I read the Bible, and all of a sudden I'm like, what? And I fall my, myself out of alignment, and I come back. Who is Jesus? What would Jesus do? How does he act? How does he react? Because the Bible says Jesus and only Jesus is the exact representation. He is the image of God, and that is why the Bible makes such a big deal that Jesus is God and he's deity. We say, oh, I don't believe that, and I don't think he said that, and that seems crazy to me, but the Bible's arguing it from a total different point because he is pure love. And I, 
God can't be that way. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't associate with those people. God wouldn't love those kind of people. And like, here he is. That's why, because we need to change the picture of God. And so Paul grants, he, he, he grabs a brand new picture of God and it leads to new power. And that's why he says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is power. And when they shared it with people who they thought would never respond, ever respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, to who Jesus Christ is, all of a sudden they began to, to respond in droves. And the balance of power is shifting. So that is the context of what all of this is being said in. All right. We have to know, we have to know that we will fall out of alignment because history, church history tells us this, that church after church after church and individual and community over and over again, we see the masterpiece and we fall out of alignment. My car was out of alignment. I took it to the shop. I had it aligned. I went back a year later and the mechanic says, you need another alignment. And I said, I just had it a year ago. There's no way it's out of alignment again. I just had it a year ago. He's like, you live in DC in potholes. You just need to embrace the fact, John, you need to embrace the truth that you're going to have to get in alignment all the time. You are a church-going Christian. You've been in church all your life. Paul is all up in your grill. He's like, you are going to constantly fall out of line. You go ahead and embrace that fact. And this is what he's doing. He's bringing back into alignment, and he's detailing it out. So this is what this is all about. All right, so the end of chapter 1, Paul lists these things, all these sins. Like, he's just rattling stuff off. And they're listening to it. I just want to give you a couple highlights. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed, a revelation of the wrath of God. It's against immorality and depravity and sexual immorality and greed and gossip and envy. He said, these people are God haters and they deserve death. And there's a whole group of people who are listening to that in the church. And they're like, this is great. Thank you. Yes, get them, get them, get them. You know, I mean, there's like, they're truthies. There are people who have lived in the Bible and they've spent their life living moral lives. They've worked, they've sweated to live a certain way. And they're like, thank you. Please, yes, send them to hell. Yes, we heard you went soft on the truth. Thank goodness, this is awesome. So, ready? That's where they are. They're like, and then Romans 2, 1 comes in. (laughs) So at the height of their self-righteousness, Paul says, you... Therefore, have no excuse. I'm like, what? What Who? You you mean somebody else, not us. You, therefore, who feel so good. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment. What does that mean to pass judgment? What it means, it describes a person who's sitting on the judge's seat. They're like, gavel down, verdict passed, case closed. Your life, your behavior, who you are. You are not right with God. Remember, righteousness is our word. You can't be right with God. There's nothing right with you about God. Case closed over. And what Paul says is there's only one person qualified to sit in the judgment seat, and that is God Almighty. Everybody else is down together, all together. Now, there's not different sections. Everybody's together in the courtroom, and we stand before God. Now, he continues, and this is, this is where it gets really dicey. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Please don't say it. Or you've got to be kidding me. So are you telling me, Paul, that the gospel is, if I say somebody, oh, no, 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 you've done, you're doing this, you're living this way. Okay, you're out. You're out with God. You're cut off from God. That's it. I just want to tell you, there's, you know, God, boom, over. 
Well, Paul is saying to me that if I do that, I'm actually condemning myself, that this is bad news. This is not good news. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. We're all self-righteous. And self-righteousness always leads to superiority. And then superiority always leads to separation. And then inside of all of us, we're all sinners. We're all self-righteous. Do you ever know somebody who, who, you know, they see somebody who feels so self-righteous and superior that you feel superior to the person who feels superior? Somebody got that deeply. (laughs) Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Whose truth? His truth. His truth that knows everything. His truth that knows everything. I have very limited, limited, limited truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And now, please, if you've gone to sleep, everybody, please pay attention to these next few words. They are critically important, right? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Can I read that again? What leads us into the relationship with God that the masterpiece, Jesus Christ, the exact representative, what is it that actually leads us into that? The kindness of God leads us into that. This is why a theology of fear is completely unchristian, anti-gospel. So what is a theology of fear? If I preach to you, hey, listen, you need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior so that you don't go to where, everybody? Hell, exactly. So what am I doing? I don't want to go to hell. I'm afraid of going to hell. I'm afraid to go. So, so that's a theology of fear. The reason I want to get into this relationship with Jesus Christ is because I'm afraid. Okay? Fear. You're going to go to hell. It's a bad basis for a healthy relationship. No healthy relationship functions that way. So my wife and I have been married 33 years. I know. I know. I know. We were married when we were 10. So... <laughs> If you came to us and you said, hey, hey, John, can you tell us you've been married 33 years? What's your secret? And I say, man, she just scares the bleep out of me. You know, I'm just so, I'm just so afraid. I'm so afraid that I'm going to end up in her hell somewhere, right? If I would say that, you would say, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. But what a relationship you guys have. See, it's a bad, it's a bad theology. It's God's kindness. The Bible tells us God's kindness. So when we, when you get a picture of the masterpiece, that it's love, like to a level that you could never imagine before. And I'm so sorry that some of us have had parents that have not loved us really, really well. But some of us have seen love or seen parents like, I love you no matter what. Even when you're spitting in my face. Even when you're telling me, I hate you, mom and dad. Like your parent is still loving me. When you kept that picture, that Jesus Christ on the cross, when it's at the worst, he's still saying, I love you. I, I, go ahead and drive the nails. I'm going to keep saying, I forgive you. I love you. When, that, no, when you grab that, you're like, Yes. You'll love me no matter what. You'll love me at my worst moment. That's what great relationships are. That's what healthy relationships are. That's beautiful. And that is why you become a Christian. Not because you want to escape hell. That's very faulty. And that takes you somewhere completely different. And that that, the foundation is totally... All right, let's go on. Okay, verse 5 and I'll close it out. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart... You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day 
of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So what's that all about? We're going to hang on to our self-righteousness. So a self-righteousness here, like an anti-gospel, is you want, your focus is on people's sins. You want to really, you're really consumed with it. I'm not, there are behaviors that are wrong. Okay, don't misunderstand me. Okay, there are behaviors that are completely wrong. But what happens is when the gospel, when you understand the picture that is being painted, this masterpiece of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, their habit of saying we're really focused on their sins over there and their behaviors, all of a sudden you change and you're like, how can I love them more? It shifts your focus, your attitude. The gospel transforms our attitude. It changes it. And now we start arguing not about people's sins, but we argue about how can we love people more? This is what hap- This is what Paul is saying. And if I hold on to that with everything I've got, then I'm just setting myself up for a problem with God. I think I'm right with God, but I'm not, right? So what are we called to do? He's saying you need to reach across the divide. The people who are radically different than you, radically different than you, because that's what's happening in the church. The church is made up of people now. It was made up of a, a real uniformity, but now the Gentiles are flooding in, and they're radically diverse and radically different. He says, you need to, re- you need to stop saying you're sinners and you're going to go to hell. You better stop. Right, right in the church, you need to just start reaching across the divide and showing kindness Instead of hatred. And that lines up with us. I mean, we've got, there's so many places, like at, at your, your home, in your own home. Do you feel divided from somebody? Do you need to reach out with kindness? The Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. How many times can we use that? How many times have I ignored that? How many times have I ignored the gospel, the masterpiece of Jesus Christ, and in my house used a bad answer to spark more wrath? The gospel says I need to figure out a way to really believe it and to reach across. We can reach across at our places of work to somebody who we feel really divided from. There is no end to how much we can reach across politically right now, right? There's no end to that story. But where do we reach across with kindness? Kindness to somebody, somebody different, somebody of a different lifestyle. What do we need, what do we need to do? Um, this has happened a number of times in our history, everybody that there'll be a natural disaster or there'll be a, a terror attack. And it's, it's terrible. And sometimes a Christian leader will stand up on TV, very public Christian leader, and say, it is because of this and this and this sin and blah, 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 and God is judging us, judgment's coming down, and these things need to stop. I just want to clarify this real quick. That is a pagan idea of God. So that's what they did. That's what those who believed, that's what the pagans did in Rome. When the emperor said, hey, things aren't going well, like there was a natural disaster or just things weren't working well, they would look around for a problem. And many times they would look around and they say, let's nail the Christians with it. And so we say, here, we're going to make the gods happy again. We don't like the Christians. We don't like their behaviors. They're not bowing down to the emperor. They have the wrong beliefs, the wrong behaviors. Let's just kill them. And if, if we think that the problem with the world is actually the behaviors of other people and all of a sudden things are going to get right and God's going to be happy with us, that is not the story that the book of Romans is telling us. And that's not what history is telling us. It's very different. The gospel changes our picture from a pagan view of God to actually the picture of God, the exact representation, who is Jesus Christ. It's very, 
Very, very, very different. Religion wants to talk about what is sin. The gospel wants to talk about what is love. Paul says this in the book of Galatians. He says, the only thing that counts, the only thing, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Jesus says, I'm giving you new command. Now, when Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command, what is he saying? He's saying, you know, you've read, there's tons of commands. Let me just go ahead and sort things out for you. Let me, let me tell you what is the most important command that supersedes all other commands. If you get this right, then you're going to get everything else right. Do this command, love. I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. In other words, I want you to be famous. My followers, my community, my church should be famous for love. And here in Romans, they weren't being famous for love. They were being famous for something completely else. And this is why Paul is talking. So I have one fill in the blank. And that is this. Self-righteousness is kryptonite to the gospel. What Paul is saying here is not all these behaviors... That's not going to slow it down. That's not going to keep the Spirit of God from falling in our midst. Self-righteousness actually is the kryptonite, right? So Superman, what's the only thing that weakens Superman? Kryptonite. Kryptonite does it. What's the only thing that weakens the gospel? The power of the story of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in Romans 2, you therefore without excuse. Why? Because they have a self-righteousness about them which made them feel superior, which caused them to separate from other people. He's saying, you've got to change that. And if you embrace Jesus, read his biography, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What would he do? How does he act? How does he react? How does he interact with people? All kinds of people. What does he do? Is he separate from other people? Is he doing it? He's not separate at all. He's right there with everybody, very comfortable with everybody, right? Always standing for the truth, always loving people no matter what. Now I begin to rule my life. My life is now based on that. And that picture begins to change me. It begins to change my attitude. And this is what Paul is saying. Your attitude has to be changed. Now, let's talk about Paul for a second from where he was to where he went. Where he was to where he went. Paul was obsessed with sin and self-righteousness, everybody. I mean, this was his this is life. He spent his life, I mean, working, toiling, working hard to make sure that every little ounce of his life that he was in alignment with the Bible. This is what he tried to do. Strict. I mean, lots of effort all of his life. And then when somebody else didn't live up to it, he got angry. Not only did he felt separated, not only did he feel superior, he began to persecute. That's why, at, you know, it was at his watch, so to speak, that the first martyr of the church, Stephen, was killed. Was killed. Because, like, I don't like this guy, what he's saying. I don't like what he's doing. He's out of alignment and all of that. And so he kills him. This is where he comes from. Very strict. And he was a Pharisee. Fair, listen, Pharisees knew the Bible. They know the Bible far better than I could ever hope to know the Bible. Far better. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible, right? First five. Think about that for a second. They say, hey, quote me a Bible verse. And they would just talk for the next 12 hours straight. I mean, really knew the Bible. And they had committed their life to living by the Bible, to living a strict code. And, you know, we might say, oh, man, that's, you know, that's crazy. But there's some really good things about that. One of the things, that, one of the things these guys would do, Pharisees, is they would walk out, you know, right, down the street or whatever. And to keep them from seeing anything that was tempting, particularly a woman, because Pharisees were all men, right, they would cover their eyes. Like they're the original bird boxers, right? They would cut. <laughs> This is real. This guy, you, you called, they called them bloody noses. They, they were known as the bloody noses people or the black eye people because they would cover their eyes and they would run into stuff. Like they'd run into things, you know, all over the place. And like, oh man, you know, that's insane. But I want you to think, I mean, th- there's some good in what they're trying to do. 
There is some good in what they're trying to do, right? I've never met a wife who says, I love it when my husband like looks at other women. I just, that makes me feel great, right? So they're trying. So, okay, so let's balance. Let's, let's balance that out. But this is who Paul is. And he, he's talking, he's focused on, okay, that's sin, that's sin, that's sin. And then he, he persecutes it. And then all of a sudden, one day, Acts chapter 9, we're talking about two chapters in the book of Acts. Both of them are phenomenal and will help us to understand what's going on. Acts 9, Acts 10. So what happens in Acts 9? All of a sudden, in one afternoon's time, Paul, who had a radically different picture of God, gets this masterpiece. And this causes him to completely change. And he goes from a persecutor to a person who is so intensely filled with the love of Christ that it didn't matter if you beat him, if you shipwrecked him, or whatever he did. He just kept coming back because he got this masterpiece, and he refused to stop loving people. He refused to stop talking about grace. He refused to say, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. He was radically, radically changed in an afternoon. In that afternoon, in Acts 9, we're told that he was blinded. He was blinded. So he was blinded from the old picture of God, which caused him to feel superior and separate. And he got this masterpiece vision of God that all of a sudden changed his attitude and it changed his heart. And the spirit of God came in, but he saw this masterpiece and it was based on grace. It's based on Jesus Christ. And he began to filter his entire life, revolve it around Jesus Christ. It had totally, totally changed. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Over at West Falls Church, uh, we have a young professional over there. Her name is Shannon. And I was in a next step with Shannon. Shannon's a regular attender at West Falls Church, but I was in a next step with her. And we were just batting around this in front of a bunch of people. And, you know, what does it mean to be a church for people who go to church? And what does it mean to love people and to love them well? What does it mean to welcome people and to welcome well? And Shannon says, you know what I think we should do? And what she, what I'm getting ready to tell you, her exact quote, uh, it's simultaneously to me, I said, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And that scares me like crazy. Sounds a lot like Jesus, really scares me. So this is what she's, I would like us to get a big sign and hang it outside of our church that says, we don't care who you are or what you are, come hang out with us. It's like, oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And that sounds really scary. <laughs> we don't care who you are or what you are, come hang out with us. That's, that is Jesus, because he hung out with everybody. People who weren't anything like Jesus really liked Jesus, and he liked them right back. And Paul did the same thing. And that got him into all kinds of trouble with other people. This is who are. Now, I want you to think about Acts chapter 10 for a second. It's a famous chapter in the Bible. Just, just think this. In Acts chapter 10, we find 15 years after, 15 years after Jesus said, go into all the world. They hadn't gone anywhere. They're still in, you know, they're still in Jerusalem for the longest amount of time, and then persecution breaks out. 15 years after Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, after he had watched for those three years of Jesus being with everybody, not being separate, not being superior, all these things that was modeled to him, he had still not set foot in a Gentile home. Fifteen years after, believing the gospel, right? Trying to get it. That's how out of alignment he was. He was still very much a racist. Fifteen years after. And he, 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 one day, he's hungry, actually, of all things. And he goes up on top the roof of a house and they were making some food for him and he falls, we're told, into a trance. And in this trance, he sees like a big picnic blanket of food come down and had all these foods that he would never eat, like pork and bacon, right? And God says, eat, rise and eat. And he says, no way, that's impure, I'll never do it. And God three times says to him, don't ever call something impure, which I've declared clean. And he wakes up, and then there's people there at the door from a guy named Cornelius, who's a Gentile, 
who he's never stepped foot in a house before. He says, you know, down the road, got a guy, he's a Roman centurion, his name is Cornelius. He'd like you to come and tell us about Jesus. He walks into the home. He's never stepped foot in his entire life because separate, wrong, like if there's some unholiness here with the way they live and it's going to spill over on me and I got to, I don't want anybody to think that I'm somehow condoning this, right? So I can't go in. He walks in because he's had this experience. Peter has. He walks in and he says, okay, everybody, just before I start, I just want you to know the Bible has told me to never associate with any of you. However, because God superseded that just now, uh, I'm here to talk to you. What do you want to hear about? Well, we want to hear about Jesus. Okay. I don't think it's going to make a bit of difference with your life, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So he begins to tell them about the story of Jesus Christ. Oh, my gosh. In the middle of him telling the story, we're told this. Check this out. Church person, this is what we want. Church person, all your life you've been in church. We sing the songs. We read the scripture. Holy Spirit fall. We need revival. Holy Spirit come down. Here's how you have revival. It's going to tell us Acts chapter 10. How's it come? He's just there associating with people that he would have never associated with before, talking to people who he knows not going to respond to the gospel, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just falls down. Their behaviors didn't stop the gospel. Peter's superiority was stopping the gospel. It was kryptonite. He had a change. God was changing his attitude radically. And the Spirit falls and revival breaks out in that home, and they receive Christ as Savior, and it's absolutely phenomenal. That's how the Spirit falls down. It's great. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. You know, if we could have maybe just one statement on our beliefs page for church, I know if you're a church person, we're, we're so, and I would be too, if I went to visit a church, like, let me go to their beliefs page first. Let me see what they really believe. If we could have one thing written on our beliefs page, maybe this would be the only thing that should be written. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Are we famous for that? This is what Paul's challenging us. See to it that no one, no one misses the grace of God. Well, uh, I told you I was stopping the sermon short, and you're saying, thank goodness, because, man, it's time to end. (laughs) So we are. So I'm going to ask those who are serving. I'm going to explain communion, but those who are serving, could you kindly grab uh, your trays? And Naomi's going to come and play on the keyboards for us. I'm going to quickly explain uh, communion to you, and then I'm going to come back. And if... Um, if you hold, and I'll explain this, if you'll hold the bread and you'll hold the cup, uh, and then we'll all eat and we'll all drink together, if you could do that. Uh, and then I want to talk to you about Bono for a minute and what Bono has to say about what it means to be a Christian, all right? So let me explain communion. What's going to happen is uh, we have those who are going to serve us, and they're going to have these trays, and they're going to just pass it down the aisles. You just sit right where you are, pass it down the aisles. In the middle of the tray is going to be some bread. You'll take one of those pieces of bread and take the cup. If you've never uh, had communion before, I just want to say this to you. Communion at Grace is open to everybody. everybody. This is between you and Jesus Christ, the masterpiece, right? It's between you and Christ. Uh, it's a serious thing because his love for you is extremely serious. And so we invite you, oh, please, you can begin to serve immediately. That would be great. Thank you. If you don't want to take communion, don't, don't, it's okay. I want you to know if you don't take communion, don't, I want you to feel like, oh my gosh, if I don't take communion, everybody's going to look at me and say, what's wrong with that person? They're not taking communion. No, you're not in that kind of church. I want you to do what you feel comfortable with. Okay. So I just ask you, as it comes to you, just take a piece of the bread, take the cup, and if you'll hold on to it, I'm going to come back up in a minute, say a few words, and then we're going to dismiss. If you're watching on Grace Live, we encourage you to grab 
some bread, grab a cup, celebrate communion with us. We're told that on the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, that he took some bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. It's basically Christ saying, um, I love you. Um, even if this causes my body to be broken in two, I love you. I'll never turn back. And the cup is covenant in my my blood, my very life, that I will give my life for you. No matter what, I'm never going to stop loving you. I'm never going to stop pursuing you. I'm never going to stop being for you, not against you. I'm going to give my life for you if that's what it requires. And it ended up requiring him to give his life. So it's a, it's a very, this what we hold in our hands symbolically represents the intenseness of God's love for us. I want to just try to explain salvation real quick, and I would like to try to do it through the words of Bono, if that's okay. Bono many times ends his concerts by a prayer, almost. He holds his hands up before God. And he says, God, take these hands. These hands are yours. He says, God, take my mouth, which is so quick to criticize and to make it yours. And then ultimately he says, Take my heart, God, and break it for what breaks yours. And what is Bono doing? He's saying, God, I'm giving my whole life to you. I'm surrendering it to you. I'm surrendering to you, Jesus. Take my life. It is yours. And then he leads this massive crowd in singing hallelujah, which means praise God. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as Savior today, that's what it means. Your hands. Your mouth, your heart, all of you surrendered to God and the picture that we have of God in Jesus Christ. Would you like to do that today? Would you like to surrender your life to that the way Bono talks about? If you'd like to do that, I encourage you to pray. Let's pray that prayer yourself just in your own seat today. God, I'm surrendering everything to you. If you want one of us to pray with you, prayer team's right over here. Push the button on Grace Live. We'd be glad to pray with you. I'm going to pray over the, the bread in the cup and then we'll eat and drink together Heavenly Father we thank you so much we thank you for this picture of pure love that you've given us Jesus we thank you that you would never turn your back on us that your love for us is so intense bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup in Christ's name Amen let us eat and drink together I know I'm six minutes over. I'm very sorry, and I didn't even finish the sermon. If you see anybody from the 930 service, just tell them that you're very sorry. He's forgotten how to preach. And uh, maybe come back next week. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then Brian's going to come up. Lord, uh, bless everybody. Help us, God, all this week to get a clearer picture, a new picture of who you are, and let it powerfully change us in Christ's name. Amen.